0: You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So every year, there's a a movement to the church calendar, and you may be entirely unaware that the church had a calendar. Um, Well, this is actually the beginning of that year, and we mark the beginning of this year, this uh, Advent season. And Advent simply just means coming. And we we mark this moment by the lighting of this candle. And it's this moment that it it marks the end and simultaneously the beginning, and it comes together in the the culmination of uh, this word hope. And so this morning, there is the lighting of the hope Candle to, to mark out for us this new way, a, a way that would actually uh, draw together both the end and the beginning. And it's, and it's the, the, the awaiting of the coming of our Lord Jesus. And um, perhaps the, the pomp of the season, the lighting of the trees, all of that uh, d- distracts you away from seeing this. But this is actually, um, th- this is the thing. This is the thing that we anchor ourselves to, and yet, um, and yet there's, there's more to be had in it. And so this is the season that we sit in. We, we sit with expectation, with longing, and something as simple as a, as a candle, this like physical act is there to draw us into that. And so I'm just going to simply pray, uh, pray that the God of hope would actually draw us into his hope. Um, And so if there is, I I don't know, perhaps uh, your tradition or your comfortability, but if there's a posture of prayer that that invites you into this, perhaps it's simply like the opening of your hands. You don't have to do it flamboyantly, but this is just a way, as we have lit the candle as a way to say, God, I'm actually open to receiving. A creator of the cosmos, if there is a hope to be had, perhaps it is from you, Um, then the simple opening of your palms would be just a, it's not doing anything for me, but just a way with your body to say, God you're here i am trying to cling into that so would you join me as we pray not just for the culture of our hearts but our church and um for god to speak to us through his word so join me if you will god of promise god of hope we just ask that you would come into this darkness that is sometimes welling up in our hearts um but we also ask that you would come in as the true light, and you would help us to ready ourselves. Amen. Amen. Um, so I, I actually have no idea how many of you this morning may be feeling hopeful If you're uh, like a seven on the enneagram, then this might just be your like natural disposition. Uh, Other people they they call sevens on the enneagram just um, like extroverts, like that, just full throttle. If you don't know the enneagram, in this might mean nothing to you. But if that's you, uh, then you're just like every day. I'm feeling quite hopeful. Yes, everything feels quite nice. For the rest of the humans in the room, hope might feel a bit elusive. uh, But perhaps you rose this morning and you were like, yes. There's snow, it's glistening, it's beautiful. Well, um, Advent is here to give us a nice collective punch in the gut. Uh, so if you did have some hope this morning, uh, welcome to church. I'm here to uh, cheer you up. And uh, maybe you think this sounds shocking. Uh, it is. And uh, Fleming Rutledge, you're going to hear her name quoted uh, uh, through these next four weeks. Um, Well, she is here to kind of start us off strong, so Fleming Rutledge for the wind right off the bat. Uh, The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. This is the beautiful tension of Advent. See, often we talk about tension, but my, uh, my, my guess is that we are so easily distracted we uh, have forgotten how to actually hold the tension that this Advent is, is talking about. Um, and here's what I mean. Uh, we, we play games on our phone while we watch Netflix because apparently we need distractions from our distractions. Can I get an amen? Like this is just like the, the layers, they just keep going deeper and deeper. Um, And by and large, what I think this does is it leaves us as these people who are really, we're we're quite poorly equipped, if we're honest with ourselves, to one, identify hope, and then um, two, cling to it, because if we're actually sitting in darkness, we don't want to feel this thing, and so we distract ourselves to death. Um, Once again, I'm just here to cheer us all up here on this first Advent, a hope candle, you all. Uh, (laughs) Goodness sakes. And so here we find ourselves, not wanting to feel the despair, and so we just uh, keep scrolling to the next thing, or we just, the crown came out, so obviously we have to just binge watch that. Um, I'm actually speaking to myself there. Um, it's quite a, a good show, new characters and casts this season, though. Hmm. Uh, but, but I don't think that we do this on purpose. I think it is, it's almost just a reflex of our age. It's, we're caught up, we're swimming in these waters and we don't even know it. And yet it's in the midst of this that this disruptive thing happens. We come to a high school in downtown Des Moines and um, we sit and we sing songs to this Jesus. By, by the way, these songs are not for us. They're to stir our affections for Jesus and then we receive this call to worship and then we are plunged into the gospel according to Matthew all the way near the end. And we have this question facing us head on and the question is this. How are we supposed to live when the world seems and really feels out of control? Like how are we supposed to do it? Well fortunately Jesus actually cares about this. Jesus, he wants us to step into this question, to feel the tension of it. But the answer might feel a little bit wonky because my guess is that most of us didn't grow up ethnically Jewish. Um, and so this morning, what we're going to do is we're just going to work our way through this text and allow it to do some work on our hearts. Uh, but, but we're going to do this with the aim of holding the, the tension, the taut tension of, of hope amidst brokenness, hope amidst despair. Uh, but before we do that, before we dive into Matthew 24, a little context as per usual. Um, so the, the text that we're in, it's right in the middle of what scholars call the Olivet Discourse. And uh, th- this is really just a fancy name for Jesus' fifth and final uh, like, like speech or discourse. Um, and it's, uh, like it might sound like a really fancy name, but it's just because of the location that he's at. So there, there's going to be a map. Isn't this, oh, that's lovely. Look at this, a little granular, but okay, so we see up at the top, that's the Mount of Olives, thus the Olivet Discourse, yeah? Okay, so here's here's what's just happened. When we meet Jesus in this passage, he's already been on the scene. Now, remember, he's announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's demonstrating that announcement with power. So he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's, he's uh, preaching with authority. He's coming and he's kind of marking himself out in the, in the imagination of these Hebrew people as a better than Moses character. Now, when you think about Moses, don't think veggie tales. Think like Old Testament, but like the parting of the seas, like the power of God coming through this unlikely character, Moses. This is, this is like so vibrant in the minds of the people. Now, Jesus is coming as one better than Moses. And he's on the scene, and God's very presence is breaking out through him. And a few chapters before this, in Matthew 19, Jesus has shifted. And he started to set his face towards Jerusalem. And this is kind of like an idiomatic, a a culturally balanced saying, to set your face. I'm I'm going there. I'm I'm bent on going to that place. And so he goes, and you see the road to Bethany. This would be the road that he travels to come in to Jerusalem. And when we see uh, him set his face, he, he goes to Jerusalem for this final throwdown of sorts. Um, And so these are the scenes that unfold. We see Jesus is a cleansing of the temple. This is uh, the the classic like Jesus uh, flipping of the tables. Um, So this is, you might see pictures of like Jesus like angry. This is, this is him. He's cleansing the temple. And then he has these verbal sparring matches with the religious leaders of the day. And uh, well, one of them, they decide to maybe catch him in his words. And so they ask him, well, what is the greatest commandment? And then this is very Jesus. He comes back and he gives two things. So one commandment was a request and he says two things, love the Lord your, all, your God with like basically your muchness and, oh yeah, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we get this bound up together. And then following this, like sensing the tone of the people, like the the distaste for Jesus' very presence, Jesus then pronounces seven woes on the religious leaders. Like this is a bad day in church if Jesus is pronouncing not one, two, three, or four, but seven woes over you. This This is not what you want to encounter. And then leaving the temple... which which by the way is the very hot spot of God's personal presence. It's like the hinge upon which the whole world swings for these Israelites. Jesus is leaving the temple. And then this moment takes place. This is in Matthew chapter 24, verse one. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now there's uh, been like all sorts of debate and controversy about Jesus's words here. Uh, But any way you cut it or shake it up, Uh, if you say something like this, you best bet that people are going to start asking questions. Like this is a temple that's been in construction for a generation. And it's just going to be thrown down. And what we read in the very next verse are some of these questions that come up. So go with me to verse 3. As he, that is Jesus, sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So this is this this moment. It's almost like a very hush-hush. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So the disciples unfold these two questions. They have first, tell us when these things will be, and then this, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And it may be uh, like helpful for us to remember that when we come to the gospels, like the gospel according to Matthew that we're in this morning, uh, it's not simply security camera footage like, it's, it's not just a cameraman. Uh, we have reality TV burning on our minds, and so we bring that into the Scriptures. But it's, that's not what's happening. Jesus isn't being followed around by a camera crew. It's, it's quite different. Um. Each gospel author who's carried along by the Holy Spirit, they're going to almost like this tapestry weave together with an audience in mind these these stories to highlight these specific moments and movements in Jesus' life in ministry that put him in front of you to, to persuade you to see him afresh because Jesus is this polarizing character. And so they want to set Jesus in front of you to disrupt the normal, And to figure out what to do with this Jesus. And this is precisely what's happening here in this moment. This is what has happened all along in the gospel according to Matthew. And these vibrant themes end up shaping the contours of Matthew's gospel. It's these themes of promise and fulfillment, which is a really Hebrew, like Israelite kind of way of thinking about the world of promise. This is the God of promise. Remember, Abraham is their father. Like their forefather, he was the one that God promised to bring blessing through. And so then you have this, if there's a promise, it has to be fulfilled. And so these are starting to shape the way that Matthew's moving. And Jesus comes to us as this, this, this possible one who might fulfill the promises of God. Which then makes all the more sense when we hear Jesus say to his apprentices that this place where God's people encounter his very presence is going to be torn down. I mean, Jesus has demonstrated that the power of God's very personal presence, the Spirit, is at work in and through him. But, but check this. These stones that Jesus is talking about, these stones are 12 meters long. They're 3 meters high, 4 meters deep. They're, they have one of these. These are Herodian stones. They have one of these stones that they found. It weighed 660 tons. The engineers in the room, you're going, oh, that's quite heavy. So for the rest of us, a little perspective. An elephant 2 to 7 tons. 660 tons. That's that's pretty heavy. So the disciples they hear these words, they hear these intense words And so they asked Jesus these two questions. When is this going to go down? And then this one, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And it's to this second question that our teaching text of the first week of Advent, that it plunges us into it. And so let's just dive back in. Um, If you have your your Bibles, you can flip your way on over or or tap your way uh, if you have not yet done so. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And stop right there. So this is Jesus speaking, responding to that second question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he opens it with this opening phrase, uh, but concerning, or your translation might say, but about. And this is not just an, like uh, a nice way to start a paragraph. This is, in the Greek, the language that the New Testament was originally written in. This is this uh, transition. It catches our attention that this new form of thought is beginning. And so if you're reading along, you're like, oh, oh okay, Jesus is saying something new here. Okay, let me, let me, let me tune my ears to you, Jesus. What, what, what are you going to say? And we, we see here that it's this focus on that day. That the one which no one knows about, neither the angels in the heavens nor the sun. And Jesus draws his disciples, and by extension us, he draws our attention to this day. And so, so we we uh, we're gonna linger on this day thing because this is no small thing. We might just blow past this, but. Remember, Matthew and his gospel, very Hebrew, that day, a very Hebrew theme. It's littered throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so what we have here is two things. First, that day, and then second, the ignorance of Jesus. So that day was stock Jewish vernacular to to talk about the day of Yahweh, or in English, the day of the Lord, which is, once again, this really Jewish way of talking about the climax of human history. This is what everything around us, past, present, and future, it's what everything is moving towards. It's towards the culmination of human history. It's the day of Yahweh. See, for example, earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter seven, we read this. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or we could could go to the Apostle Paul, who's tapping into this theme as well. And we can see him saying this to his protege, Timothy. In, In 2 Timothy 4, we read this. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That day, it's shorthand. It's shorthand for the end goal of this human drama. And if you're curious, which I, I just know that you are, there are four movements to the day. So let's just, uh, let's have a little, uh, can we just have a little nerd out moment? Yeah? I'm gonna do it anyways, I guess. All right, so here we go. So first, uh, the, the first movement, uh, the Messiah is appearing. Second is The resurrection. This is the resurrection of the dead. So this is the righteous to life and the wicked to destruction. Uh, And if you're hung up on that whole thing, just stick with me. Third, judgment. Because if, uh, you know, the the righteous and if that one wasn't hard, judgment. This is what we love to hear. This is when God comes to put all wrong things right which is, and as scary as that sounds and as non-PC as that may be and as much controversy around that as there is, I think that we're all craving judgment. No? No? No amens to that? No, I, th- I think we're all craving judgment, that we are a generation and a people craving for God to once and for all set the world straight to end injustice, to end evil and disease and corruption, this strange perversion that is found in our world. And to end death itself, we are craving that. To put all of that away and to wipe the slate clean. This is what we are craving. You know, the Apostle Paul, the the one who's spurring on his protege, Timothy, he also has this to say. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation, who, by the way, that is Jesus, if he builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. And then check this out. For the day will disclose it. So often we think about judgment and we we have this condemning tone that just totally like makes it all whitewashed in condemnation, but this judgment is a purifying reality. And as difficult as that may be, this this is how we begin to hold the tension of hope amidst despair is with the day. It will disclose it because because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And finally, finally, we will enter into the healing of the cosmos or as we might hear around here, the new heavens and the new earth. See, I think the challenge for us is less that this sounds weird and more that the day is not just for those people out there. It's not just for those people. And just fill in the blank there. Whoever those people are in your mind, judgment, the day is not just for them. Whether it's the people who fly the flag at their church that has all the colors or they read that translation or whatever piddly thing we're gonna hold, the day is not just for those people out there. The day is for you, and the day is for me. And in an odd swing, the day is an invitation. This whole season, Advent, is an invitation to resist the evil without and the evil within. And it is a promise that God will one day free us and our world from corruption to its bondage and decay. It's an invitation and it's a promise. But concerning the sign of all of this, concerning the end of the age, I love this. Jesus just simply says, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. And this is the last thing that I think we wanna hear Jesus say. I, I don't think any of us wants to come to Jesus, our Lord, ask him a question and him just go, yeah, that's a good, that's a, I don't know. Like that's, a, for us today, if you're in the marketplace or wherever you may be, um, if somebody asks you a question, it might be a sign of humility or sincerity when you say, ah, you know, that's a good question. I don't know, let me find out about that. At least Jesus come at us with, let me find out about that. I mean, you are one with the Father, come on now. But no, he just goes, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, okay, so now the ignorance of Jesus, here we go. So uh, this, is, this is what I'm thinking. The logic of, of the ignorance is as follows. If the angels and the son don't know, who are the leading characters in this whole scenario, if they don't know it, it stands to reason that it also lies beyond our reach. We're following that logic? If if the angels of the heavens don't know it, if the sun doesn't know it, then I don't think we're gonna know it. And this is just like a quick aside, a quick pastoral word. And I know that we're still developing this equity of trust and like trying to do this Thing of pastoring and like follow, I don't know this. Church is weird, but here's a quick word to just step into this new reality we're all trying to embrace, which is new life in Christ. If Jesus doesn't know it and it's out of our reach, then, then perhaps when we try and chart this out or put it on a timeline or predict when that day is coming, When we try and and, and maybe get caught up in the modern state of Israel, the geopolitical state, maybe we are trying to say to Jesus, I know. If you don't know, then I know. So this is not like a condemning or a shaming word or, or to say, well, they're wrong and we're right. It's just to say, like, this is a space for us to trust the I don't know of Jesus. This is the beautiful tension of Advent. And so let me just say once more with Jesus, nobody knows, nor the angels of heaven, nor the Son, just the Father. But, but did you hear that? Like Gateway, did you hear that? Remember, we—I ask a question. We can. Talk. Did you hear that? Reluctantly, so the Father knows. Come on, the Father knows. And perhaps for you, this, this raises all sorts of alarms, like the flags are all just being thrown, they're going off, whatever metaphor, illustration you need. I thought Jesus was God. Like, I, I, Shouldn't he know all this stuff? Like, what? Jesus. Like, when is it going to go down, Jesus? Sh- shouldn't, shouldn't he know this? Well, yes and, and no. See, Jesus is God in the flesh, yes, but Jesus is in the flesh, or to be more precise, Jesus is the embodiment of God. Therefore, when, and get this, this is a big point here. When God became human, he became human. The, not fake human, not kind of human. No, he became Jesus of Nazareth. He, he set aside the full spectrum of his godness to enter into the reality of our stuff to enter into the brokenness, to enter into the decay. He set it aside to come in here of his own free will, of his own volition. In theology talk, we could, we could get at it this way. Uh, we could say God is omnipresent, which is just a fun way of saying that there is nowhere that God is not. So God is everywhere. Um, and so we, we end up praying prayers like, God, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? Which in some sense is kind of a silly prayer. And in another sense, it's like the best prayer we could ever pray. Because in one sense, God is here. So it it might actually be uh, good for us even this morning right now to just like pray God help us to show up. So um, rather than talk about prayer, I'm just going to just pray real quick. Uh, Father, we just give pause to... I don't know, the the next notification that comes up, we just like set that aside for your presence, for your word. Would you actually help us to show up to the reality of your presence that you are here with us? Um, And yet, Lord Jesus, we ask you to come. See, there's a reality where we can pray, and, and it might just be the best thing for us to pray to show up. And then in another sense, it might be the best thing for us to ask for the Spirit of God to come. So we say amen. So we're not just talking about God's omnipresence. We're asking for his manifest presence, for his physical presence to come and stir us from death to life. That's kind of what's going on there. And see, when you go to school, when you... Go into the office. When you get in your car, God is there. When you're in your cubicle, he's there. When you're on your commute, he's there. The place that you try and hide away from him in your secret sin, yeah, you, you got it. He's there as well. Now, this is not a, a trick question. This is just a very straightforward, not rhetorical. Is Jesus everywhere? I'm just going to shake my head. no. Jesus is not, he's Jesus of Nazareth and of his own free will, of his own volition, he entered into the human story. The sto- like he entered into the story in a specific time, in a place, in a space. And there is a, this is the beauty of Jesus's humanity. And yet it's also this marvelous frustration and if you feel that tension, like you are not alone because even some of the copyists of the New Testament, just as a reminder, not written in English, in, in, written in Greek and in Hebrew, and when they're copying these things so that they could come to us in English, they left this line out that Jesus didn't know because certainly the Christ would know. It just didn't map onto their vision of Jesus, but Jesus's vision of Jesus is that he is fully human. See, Jesus' ignorance of the day, it's nothing to be alarmed about. In fact, it's the very place that the author of of Hebrews draws hope amidst weakness. So just listen to this in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is the full humanity of Jesus. And so in light of that, this is the hope. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive and find grace to help in time of need. See, this is the Jesus who our teaching text draws us into It draws us into this hope. And in turn, it draws us away from this speculation of what may come at that day. It helps us to actually trust the words on Jesus's lips. And and just again, just listen what he says in verse 37. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, until that day, When Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you notice that line there? Um, They were unaware. That line, like this past couple of weeks, has just been haunting me. They were just unaware. See, the people of Noah's days, they were oblivious They had no inkling that judgment was on the horizon until it was too late. And yet right in their midst, Noah is doing this thing. He is constructing a life that says all is not right with this world. He's not coming at them with Prophecy charts or timelines. No, he is living against the grain. It's this life of preparation. It's this life of obedience. It's a life of watchfulness. And now this is a place in a, in a sermon like this where a preacher like me could, if I wanted to, lean hard on the people of a church. This could happen. It could happen where we say the, the The flood is literally God repenting of his creation of humanity. And so what somebody like myself in this position in a sermon like this could do is is they could start talking about all the ways that we've like buffered ourselves against dependence on God. Have we kept him at arm's length? How we just live these lavish lives of comfort where we actually don't Feel any distinct need. We come and we sing about, oh Jesus, how we need you. We watch nice videos about it, but that's not actually anything in our felt experience. Somebody could talk about that. Or or perhaps somebody in this moment, giving a sermon like this, following the judgment of Noah, uh, we could talk about how we're distracting ourselves to death, hardly able to even hear the voice of God, if at all, if ever. But we're not going to do that today. Um, I don't think it would be in keeping with the words of Jesus. Because right here, rather than rebuke, he calls his people to repair. To prepare. To prepare their hearts. To prepare their hands. To make themselves ready. To keep watch. To stay awake. And once again, this is the Advent tension. This is the holding to hope amidst discontentance. But we are prone to miss it. Because once again, we are, Most likely, not ethnically Jewish. So a lot of this just goes sweeping over our heads right past us because these passages, they sound so odd. And just to keep with it, let's just keep it going. Verse 40. uh, Then two men will be in the field, as we often are. One will be taken and one left. And then two women will be grinding at the mill, as you often are. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. See, in a couple uh, in a couple short months, our city will be marked out as the hinge upon which our nation's presidential hopes swing. Ah, glorious! We all say. And if you live anywhere near downtown, or I guess you just have a pulse and live in Iowa, um, you've begun to like feel it. It's kind of in the air. You see the signage. Um, you see like the little bits of mail. You have all, like, how did they get my number? I just moved here. I have an 858 area code, and the, but they, consp- I, okay, I, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. Ha, we feel it. And, uh, and I think it was my first week here. Um, I just taken residence uh, of our house. We live just like on, the, on the, like the outskirts, I guess. Of down- I don't know. I'm still learning. We we live over near uh, Ingersoll and Thirty First, and and, um, and Jessica had yet to move here with Finn, and so the house is kind of like empty. I'm just like tidying things up. I think I got like I was doing something outside. I got a little bit sweaty. And so I do, as one does, when you get sweaty. Um, I was going to get dinner with the Davises that night, so I said I would present a non-sweaty self, and I hopped in the shower. Um, And as I'm in the shower, I hear this bang. Now, I just took occupancy of the house. I don't know it sounds, so I'm a little nervous. So I, uh, I wrap myself up in a towel. In um, our house, it has this kind of like uh, three seasons front porch, all these windows, and then uh, rooms that look in, like just past the living area right into those windows. And so I um, peek my head through the doorway. And there is now, to, to see what the bang was, of course, and so I look through the doorway and there's this young man, hands up on the window, looking in, sees me like dripping wet, and so I immediately retreat back in to the safety of the bathroom. And I hope that the silence will be a telling signal. But no. Uh, can, you, can you guess what happened next? Any, anybody? Anybody? No? Okay, I'll tell you. He knocked. He knew I was there. That young whippersnapper was determined to see me come forth from the bowels of the bathroom. Maybe not the best word to say related to bathroom. But there I am, and I'm like, all right, well, he's persistent. Maybe it's important. So, uh, like, I, I scurry around. I get some clothes on. I, I go over, and I go to the door. And I open it up. There's a clipboard in hand. He says, are you Hector? No, I'm not Hector. (laughs) Well, are you a Democrat? Um, No, I I haven't registered anyway. How can I help you? Well, I'm with so-and-so. We have a sign on our door that says no soliciting, no exceptions. (laughs) Apparently that sign didn't apply that day. Um, Maybe I should remove it. I don't know if that's very pastoral. Anyways, um, so he asks me this question. And my point is this, as silly as this all may be, I wasn't ready. I had no idea that when you come to Iowa and caucusing is on the horizon that you better not take a shower ever. (laughs) So let's recall, what happened in the flood? This is is a real-time question. What happened in the flood? Oh, no, it's like a pop quiz. He's doing this again. Let me help you out. Take a breath. What happened in the flood? Come on, church. We got this. What us just say floodwaters came. There we go. Okay. Okay. I won't do this ever again <laughs> until uh, three weeks from now. So floodwaters came. So if you were taken by the floodwaters, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs way down. There we go. That's way. I'll just ask thumbs up or thumbs down questions from now on. Okay, so the flood narrative is how Jesus is framing verses 40 to 42. In other words, it's as if it is better to be left behind. The, the implication is that it is, it is possible to prepare for this. Not by calculating the date, but by a life of constant readiness and response to God's warnings and instructions. But look to verse verse 43. Check this out. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. See, this passage, it comes to us in three movements. First, nobody nobody except the Father knows what the day is. Is going to be. Second, uh, life is just gonna go on. You're gonna continue picking up your dry cleaning, dropping your kids off, meeting up for a coffee with a coworker. You're just gonna continue doing these things. It's gonna go on right up until the last minute. That's the parallel with Noah. And third, the day will divide. It will divide families, it will divide colleagues, it will divide marriages right down the middle. One will be taken, one will be left. And all of this together, it lays in front of us Jesus' eagerness, like that that word just doesn't do it. It's Jesus' desperation for his followers, for you and for me to be ready. But we have a hard time doing this, do we not? We have a hard time clinging to hope. And it's not just us. It's like Jesus's inner crew. It's the people who are closest to him. And as I, I, as I was like thinking through this, I was just like, oh my goodness. Like what, what in the, like what do we say? Okay, Advent, hope, like yeah, let's get ready and like cheerlead each other on out of here and go to the Advent shop? But then I remembered that this, this week it comes like a punch in the gut. And then this just a a few chapters after, when Jesus is feeling the weight of the call of God upon his life, when he is in the garden, when he is sweating literal drops of blood, everyone falls asleep. And his words are haunting. Just listen to this two chapters later. Matthew 26, verse 40. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch with me just one hour? So if those words don't do something to you, maybe the next ones will. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Just stop right there. I imagine that if we were willing in this moment to consider what has tempted us this week. Our minds would be flooded with gluttony and lust and like like ungodly ambition. Like I will get that position irrespective of who gets in my way or, or just simple bitterness, like just petty bitterness. It, but remember, no temptation has seized you that is not common to man. And Jesus has been tempted in every way. He knows your temptation. But to be tempted is not to be caught up in temptation. And so Jesus says, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation and then get this gateway. This, like these, I, these words like so captured my imagination and I would pray that they would for you as well. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. To be a follower of Jesus means that we have a hope that Jesus' kingdom will come, that his will will be done here in our hearts, here in Des Moines, as it is in heaven, fully one day. And more so, that this has been kickstarted in Jesus' life. It's been kickstarted like he, he, nobody takes his life, he willingly gives it away for our benefit, for his name's sake. So we, we look to the resurrection. We look to the ascension. We, we look to the sending of his personal presence and his spirit because the spirit is willing. But you know what's weak? Our, our flesh is weak. The spirit, I, like I, I don't know if you heard this. Okay, so let me just say it again. Let's just see the words clearly. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And for some of us, Like for myself, I believe that weakness is weak. Maybe you're thinking, well, duh. Like, duh, weakness is weak, Kyle. But let me just say to me, let me say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning and you think that weakness is weak, I love you and you are wrong. It's actually the opposite. Weakness is, is the strength, In God's economy, it flips, and our weakness is his strength. And so we are left in this season of Advent looking like a bunch of weirdos because we're saying that when we are weak, we're made strong. We're actually coming to one another with tears welling in our eyes because despair is welling up yet again, and we don't know how to or if we can even cling to hope. And yet remember, in hope, the end and the beginning, they meet together to make a new way forward. See, it's in the disappointment, the brokenness, the suffering, the pain, the weakness. That's where we hold the tension. So how might we be ready? Like, how might we keep watch? I have no idea. I have no idea what each and every one of us need to keep watch with. But the Father knows. And this is not just to say, hey, better watch out. He's watching. It's not that at all. It's to say that the Spirit is willing. And if, if we are willing to meet, you know, you know why Jesus went away? He, he went away because it would be better for us. Because if he stayed, he could only be in one place. But if he went up to be with the Father, then he could send his presence and the Spirit to be with us at all times, in all places, in all circumstances, in the midst of despair. This is the beautiful tension of Advent. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.